Chapter One of The Life of Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. When nature has bountifully endowed a man with every gracious gift which should ensure for him success and felicity in life, when she has made him the fit subject for the boundless admiration or the unrestrained envy of his contemporaries, and when this favoured and fortunate man suddenly discloses leanings, propensities, instincts, which, rapidly developing into passions, he appears utterly powerless to bridle, precipitate him amidst the exuberant exultation of his enemies and the stone-eyed dismay of his friends into an abyss of disgrace and misery, it becomes more particularly the duty of an equitable biographer to inquire if either heredity or parental example or early training and environment can in any degree help the world to understand the formidable physiological problem how in one and the same man can be allied supreme intelligence with reckless imprudence a remarkable respect for society with an utter defiance of social observances and the most refined hedonism with a taste for the coarsest frequentations in the case of oscar wilde the problem, when his descent and kinship have been studied, becomes even more intricate and perplexing. For while in his immediate parentage will be discovered people whose incontestable genius was united, as is so often the case with pronounced moral degeneracy, his ascending lines, traced back to remote generations, display such solid qualities of sane normality and civic excellence that this unhappy man's aberration must appear one of those malignant, morbid developments which alarm and confound the psychologist when they unexpectedly produce themselves in a man's mentality, no less than as by the sudden development in the body of malignant and morbid growths the practitioner is confounded and alarmed. It therefore becomes necessary, before proceeding to the account of the strange vicissitudes of his life, to investigate with more than usual care his descent and affinities. In this way alone can it be hoped that some light may be thrown upon the disquieting problem which his career discloses. It is an investigation which, when the laws of atavism shall, with the progress of science, be better understood, may enable an enlightened posterity to judge a most remarkable man, in many ways an ornament to humanity, with the justice which was refused to him in his lifetime, and will continue to be refused to his memory as long as the medieval obscurantism, from which we are only just beginning to emerge, still enswathes the minds of men. So important is the object to be attained by this investigation, for what purpose can transcend the attainment of justice, that if in its course personal considerations are ousted, and the pious reverence due to the dead may appear to be disregarded, these sacrifices cannot but be considered as imperatively imposed. Oscar Fingal O'Flaherty Wills Wilde was born at number one Merrion Square in the city of Dublin on the 16th of October 1854. So great a part of the task of telling the story of his life consists in correcting the mistakes of those who have written about him, in refuting unfair aspersions on his character and in nailing venomous lies to the counter of public opinion, that particular attention may be called to the date of his birth. In such biographical notices of him as exist, 
The year in which this unhappy man was ushered into a world where he was to suffer so greatly is given as 1856. He was not born in 1856, but two years earlier. As this narrative proceeds, negations of far greater importance will have to be put upon record. His life indeed, like that of many men who have been made the victims of the unreasoning hatred of his countrymen, might be almost told in a series of denials of current lies concerning his character and his deeds. As to the particular inaccuracy, however, to which attention is drawn above, it probably arose from his own misstatement. He professed an adoration for youth. His works contain many almost rhapsodical eulogies of physical and mental immaturity. And no doubt that, as he himself drew nearer to what he satirised in his plays as the usual age, he gave us the year of his birth a date which made him appear two years younger than he really was. A friend of his, on one occasion, endeavoured to point out to him that a man might derive far greater satisfaction in giving out his age as more advanced than it really was, in posturing as old in years when younger in fact, in hugging to his heart the secret reserve of days. But he refused to admit it. In his cross-examination by Mr Carson during the trial of Lord Queensbury, he was forced to admit the truth as to the date of his birth. The following remarks were then exchanged between the prosecutor and the Marquess's counsel. Mr Carson. You stated your age as 39. I think you are over 40. The witness. I am 39 or 40. You have my birth certificate and that settles the matter. Mr Carson. You were born in 1854. That makes you over 40. The witness. Ah. This... Ah, sounded like a sarcastic note of admiration for the barrister's skill in arithmetic. How it was calculated to wound the defending counsel will be indicated later. For months before Oscar Wilde was born, his mother had earnestly desired that the child should be a girl. Footnote. This fact, like every other fact recorded in this book, is given on unimpeachable authority. End footnote. She often expressed her conviction that a daughter was going to be born to her. She used to tell friends of the things she was going to do after my little girl is born, and used to discuss the education she proposed to give to her daughter. When Oscar was born, her disappointment was great. She refused to admit that her new child was a boy. She used to treat him, to speak of him as a girl, and as long as it was possible to do so, she dressed him like one. To pathologists, these facts will appear of importance. Oscar Wilde was the second son and child, issue of the marriage between William Robert Wills Wilde, oculist and otologist, 1815-1876, and of Jane Francesca Elgy, poetess and pamphleteer, 1826-1896, which was celebrated in Dublin in 1851. For his parents, he ever felt the deepest affection and respect. For his mother in particular, this affection reached the degree of veneration. In filial piety and love, he gave a noble example to humanity. The feelings which he entertained towards his mother and father are expressed in language of lofty eloquence in the book De Profundis, which he wrote while a prisoner in Reading Jail, during the last six months of his confinement there he has referred to his mother's death, and he adds, quote, No one knew how deeply I loved and honoured her. Her death was terrible to me, 
but I, once a lord of language, have no words in which to express my anguish and my shame. She and my father had bequeathed me a name they had made noble and honoured, not merely in literature, art, archaeology and science, but in the public history of my own country, in its evolution as a nation. I had disgraced that name eternally. I had made it a low byword among low people. I had dragged it through the very mire. I had given it to brutes that they might make it brutal, and to foes that they might turn it into a synonym for folly. What I suffered then, and still suffer, is not for pen to write, or paper to record. My wife, always kind and gentle to me, rather than that I should hear the news from indifferent lips, travelled, ill as she was, all the way from Genoa to England to break to me herself the tidings of so irreparable, so irredeemable a loss. Unquote. Mr. William Wilde, afterwards Sir William Wilde, the surgeon, was a product of that intermixture of races in Ireland of which, speaking at a meeting of the British Association held in Belfast, he said, I think that there cannot be a better fusion of races than that of the Saxon with the Celt. His grandfather, Rafe Wilde, was the son of a Durham businessman, and towards the middle of the 18th century was sent over to Ireland to seek his fortunes. The region which was selected for him, for the exercise of his ability, was that Connaught which Cromwell's soldiers described as the alternative to hell. Footnote. To hell or Connaught was the alternative proposed by the English invaders to the Irish peasants whom they hunted off their lands like wild beasts. End of footnote. Here, after a while, he became land agent to the Sandford family. He settled in Castlery, in the county of Roscommon, where he married a Miss O'Flynn, the daughter of a very ancient Irish family which gave its name to a district in Roscommon, still known as O'Flynn's County. Rafe Wilde had several children. One of them, Rafe Wilde, who was a distinguished scholar and who, like his grandnephew, Oscar Wilde, won the distinction of the Barclay Gold Medal at Trinity College, Dublin, became a clergyman. Another, Thomas Wilde, was a country physician. This Thomas Wilde married a Miss Finn, who was related by descent to the eminent families of Surridge and Ousley of Dunmore in the county of Galway. The Ousleys were most distinguished people, Sir Rafe Oosley, Bart, who was a very famous Oriental scholar, was British ambassador to Persia. His brother, Sir William Oosley, was secretary to Lord Wellesley in India. General Sir Rafe Oosley won great distinction in the Peninsular War. His brother was a famous preacher and writer of theological works, of which the most famous is the book entitled Old Christianity. Of this kinsman, Oscar Wilde used to relate many anecdotes. He appeared to be much impressed by the sonority and suggestiveness of his name, Gideon Oosley. On one occasion, speaking of titles of novels, he recommended to a friend to write a book of which the hero should bear the name of Gideon Oosley, and to use the hero's name as the title of the story. He declared that a book with such a title could not fail to appeal to the public. Gideon Oosley, Methodist, was the John Wesley of Ireland, his sermons in the Irish language, addressed to people at the fairs and markets, are still preserved in the memory of people living in the western province from hearsay from their parents. William Robert Wills Wilde was the son of Dr Thomas Wilde by his marriage with Miss Finn. 
He was born in Castlery in 1815 and received his education at the Royal School, Banneher. It is, however, reported of him that fishing occupied more of his attention than school studies, for which he had an admirable teacher in the person of Paddy Walsh, afterwards immortalised by the pupil in his Irish popular superstitions. In the Dublin University magazine, the following account is given of youthful tastes which led to studies of which in later life he was to make such excellent use. Quote, the delight of the fisher lad was to spend his time on the banks of the lakes and rivers within his reach, talk Irish with the people, and listen to the recital of the fairy legends and tales, his knowledge of which he so well turned to account in the Irish popular superstitions. His taste for antiquarian research was early exhibited, and much fostered by his repeated examinations of the cahirs, forts and caves of the early Irish which exist in the vicinity of Castlereagh, as well as by visits to the plain of Ruth Craggan, the site of the great palace and cemetery of the chieftains of the West. In the district around were castles whose legends he learned, patterns where he witnessed the strange mixture of pilgrimage, devotion, fun and frolic, cockfights for which Roscommon was then famous, and the various superstitions and ceremonies connected with the succession of the festivals of the season. All these made a deep impression on the romantic nature of young Wilde, and many of them have been handed down to posterity by his facile pen. Unquote. His professional studies commenced in 1832. As a medical student, he acted as clinical clerk to Dr. Every Kennedy in the Lying In Hospital, and obtained the annual prize there against several English and Irish competitors. In studying for this examination, he so overworked himself that his health broke down, and, a fever setting in, his life was for some time despaired of. He was actually suffering from the fever which went so nigh to kill him on the very day of the examination. The case, indeed, was despaired of, until Dr. Robert Greaves having been sent for, an hourly glass of strong ale was prescribed as the only remedy from which any results might be expected. It was held at the time that it was, indeed, the administration of this stimulant which saved his life. The idea was no doubt an erroneous one, according to modern medical science, and the delusion may very possibly have been the cause of much subsequent mischief in the young man's family. In a household the head of which attributes the saving of his life to the use of alcohol in copious doses, the practice of temperance will naturally enough be looked for in vain, and it is no doubt at home that those habits of drinking were fostered which were to make such havoc in the lives of William Wilde's two sons. And to which it should be added here that, although Oscar Wilde was in no sense a hard drinker, and never by his most intimate friends was once seen in a state of intoxication, it is on record that every single foolish and mad act which he did in his life, acts which had for him the most disastrous consequences, was done under the influence of liquor. It is one of the most damnable qualities of alcohol that wherein a man any morbid tendency, either physical or moral, exists, which, sober, he can keep under complete control, the use of strong drink will bring it to the surface. The French doctors say of alcohol that it gives the coup de fouet, the lash of the whip, to any disease either of the body or of the brain which may be present in a subacute state in a man who indulges in strong drink. No doubt that, because in his home in Merrion Square, 
Oscar Wilde had always heard the virtues of alcohol celebrated as a drug which, on a famous occasion, had saved his father's life, he did not attach importance to the teachings of later and more advanced science, which would have taught him that in his case the poison might produce results the most disastrous. William Wilde is still remembered as a surgeon of particular resource and courage. Even as a medical apprentice he displayed these qualities. It is related of him on reaching the parish church in Kong, in the county Mayo, one Sunday morning, he found the place in a state of huge commotion. It appeared that a small boy of about five years of age, having swallowed a piece of hard-boiled potato which had stuck in his throat, was in the act of choking. The young medical student, with the readiness which afterwards distinguished him amongst his contemporaries, saw at a glance that an immediate operation must be effected if the child's life was to be saved. He happened to have a pair of scissors in his pocket. He was fortunately not restrained by the modern terror of using any instrument which had not been rendered antiseptic, and he boldly cut into the boy's throat. The operation was entirely successful, and the child recovered. He may be living still, for when he was last heard of, in Philadelphia in 1875, he was a middle-aged man, who took a particular pride and pleasure in showing people a scar on his neck where, as he used to say, the famous Sir William Wilde of Dublin cut my throat. It was with similar readiness that Sir William once saved the sight of a Dublin fisherman, who was brought to him with a darning needle embedded up to the head in his right eye. The flapping of a sail in which the needle was sticking had driven it in with terrible force. An ordinary operation was out of the question. There was not enough of the head protruding to allow of any hold being got on it with the forceps, by which it might have drawn from its place. The man was suffering terrible agony. Sir William saw at once what was the only means of extracting the needle. He sent for a powerful electromagnet, by the help of which, in the shortest time, the steel bar was extracted. There are on record many similar instances of his energy, courage and fertility of resource. Already as a young man, he distinguished himself in the field of letters. While still a medical student, he sailed in charge of a sick gentleman on board the yacht Crusader, visiting many places in the Mediterranean and in the East, during a cruise which lasted many months. The account of this cruise he published on his return to Ireland. He found in the Messrs. Curry ready and liberal publishers. For the copyright of this young man's book, they paid him a sum of £250. The speculation was a profitable one for them. The first edition consisted of 1,250 copies of the book, which was issued in two volumes at 28 shillings. This edition was sold out immediately, a second edition was as rapidly disposed of, and other editions followed. The book has long since been out of print. The young man continued his medical studies in London, Berlin and Vienna, and finally started in medical practice in July 1841, selecting as special branches those of oculist and otologist. He took as the motto of his professional career the words, Whatever thou hast to do, do it with all thy might. His reputation was already so good that in the first year of his practice he earned in professional fees the sum of £400, which, it appears, is an amount very rarely reached by the fees of a surgeon in his first year. 
This money he devoted in its entirety to the charitable purpose of founding a hospital where the poor could be treated for eye and ear diseases. At that time, no such institution existed in the Irish capital. He did more than this. He applied the first thousand pounds of his professional earnings to his noble purpose. To him, in this manner, the city of Dublin and the whole country of Ireland owe the foundation of St. Mark's Ophthalmic Hospital. Footnote. Since its amalgamation with the National Eye and Ear Infirmary, Molesworth Street, Dublin, this institution has become known as the Royal Victoria Eye and Ear Hospital. End footnote which for 64 years has rendered such inestimable services to the suffering Irish poor, and which increases in usefulness every year of its existence. The last annual report gives a record of benevolent activity which few hospitals, which started with resources so meagre, can show. It is a noble institution, the foundation stone of which was the noble sacrifice of a noble man. The following extract from the first annual report issued in 1844, gives an interesting account of its first establishment. Quote, Although most of the large hospitals in this city, and the several infirmaries, poorhouses and other institutions in Ireland which afford indoor medical relief, admit patients labouring under affections of the organs of sight and hearing, there has not up to the present period existed in this country any special hospital for treating the diseases of the eye and ear. The want of such an establishment, upon a scale so extensive as to afford general relief, has long been felt by the poor, and is generally acknowledged by the upper classes of society. In the year 1841, a dispensary for treating the diseases of these organs was established in South Frederick Lane, and supported by its founder, Sir William Wilde, for twelve months, at the end of which time, Finding the number of applicants and the consequent expenditure far exceeding what was originally contemplated, or what could be supported by individual exertion, and not wishing to apply for public aid for the sum required to defray its expenses, he determined to try the experiment of making it support itself, by a monthly subscription from each of the patients. This plan succeeded fully, and since September 1842, the patients have each paid a small monthly sum during the period of their attendance, which has defrayed the expenses of the medicine. In this way, 1,056 persons were treated during the year ending September 1843, and the total number of patients relieved with medicine, medical advice or by operation from the commencement of that institution to the 1st of March 1844, was 2,075. Paupers have, however, at all times, received advice and medicine gratuitously. The sum paid by each patient is but sixpence per month, and this system of partial payments has been found to work exceedingly well. It has produced care, regularity and attention, and induced a spirit of independence among the lower orders of society worthy of countenance and support while the annual sum of £50 received in this way is in itself a sufficient guarantee that its benefits are appreciated by the poor, numbers of whom seek its advantages from distant parts of the country. Unquote. Through a Mr Grimshaw, a dentist, William Wilde obtained the use of a stable in Frederick Lane, which was to form the nucleus of the hospital, which afterwards developed into such a splendid institution. Having provided a few fixtures, the young surgeon commenced his gratuitous labours, which he continued throughout the whole of his career. 
an inscription in the front of the hospital records the name of its founder, and in the hall stands a bust of Sir William Wilde, which was purchased by direction of the head surgeon at the sale of the effects of William Wilde, his eldest son, after his death in Cheltenham Terrace, Chelsea. In 1848, he published what has been described as one of the most chivalrous literary efforts, his account of the closing years of Dean Swift's life. Two years after his marriage with Miss Jane Francesca Elgie, that is to say, in 1853, he was appointed Surgeon Oculist in Ordinary to the Queen, which was the first appointment of the kind made in Ireland. In 1857, he visited Stockholm and was created a Chevalier of the Kingdom of Sweden and was, further, decorated with the Order of the Polar Star. Seven years later, at the conclusion of a chapter of the Knights of St. Patrick, held for the installation of new members of this order, and after the knights had left the hall, the genial Lord Carlyle, Viceroy, from his place on the throne, addressed the great surgeon, beckoning him to approach, and said, Mr. Wilde, I propose to confer on you the honour of knighthood, not so much in recognition of your high professional reputation, which is European, and has been recognised by many countries in Europe, but to mark my sense of the services you have rendered to statistical science, especially in connection with the Irish census. There was nothing of the cynic in Lord Carlyle, and his remarks to William Wilde were sincere as a compliment. One can imagine the mental reservations that, say, Lord Beaconsfield or Lord Lytton would have made had they been in Lord Carlyle's place, and had they been called upon to announce the impending honour to the man who had distinguished himself by his labours on behalf of the Irish census. For no document more than an Irish census report contains so scathing an indictment of castle rule. Nothing that Speranza ever wrote constituted a more violent appeal to Irish nationalists. No Fenian denunciation of the Sassanac has ever exceeded in bitterness of reproach the simple total of numerals which William Wilde's labours compelled the British government to lay before the people of Europe. For the rest, the honour of knighthood appears to be distributed with greater largesse in Ireland than even in England or Scotland, and it really seems that it is in Dublin a distinction for a professional man not to have received the tap of the Viceroy's sword. Wilde's acceptance of the honour was resented in some places, for it was thought that the husband of Speranza ought not to have taken favours from the castle, just as some years later Speranza's acceptance of a pension from the British government, which she had so fiercely attacked in her youth, was also resented. In a biographical notice of Sir William Wilde, which was published in 1875, one year before his death, where reference is made to another honour which was won by him, the following passage occurs which, read today, has a peculiarly pathetic interest. Quote, in connection with the award of the Cunningham Medal of the Royal Irish Academy in 1873 to Sir William Wilde, it is a remarkable fact, worthy of record, that within a few months of its presentation, his two sons, William and Oscar, were each awarded a medal of Trinity College, the former, who has just been called to the Irish Bar, by the College Philosophical Society for Ethics and Logic, and the latter, who is now, 1875, a distinguished scholar at Oxford, for the best answering on the Greek drama. Unquote. 
Sir William Wilde was too hospitable and too charitable a man to amass any large fortune, such as would have been acquired by most men of his professional ability and European reputation. But at the time of his death, he was in the comfortable position of a substantial landowner. Some years ago, says a notice of him, Sir William Wilde became a proprietor in the county of Mayo, where he has most successfully carried out schemes of improvement, and has shown that he can reclaim land and profitably carry on farming operations, which is what few of even resident proprietors can boast. Finding a portion of the ancestral estate of the O'Flynns, from which he is maternally descended, for sale in the land estate court, he became the purchaser. The portion in cultivation was covered by a wretched pauper tenantry, numbers of whom it became necessary to remove, to enable those remaining to have a means of comfortable existence. Understanding somewhat of the language of the people, and being, as they said, one of the old stock, he was able, with advice from the Catholic clergy, to carry out his plans without exciting discontent, or involving the sacrifice of large sums of money, and he gave an ample tenant right to those that remained on the property over twelve years ago. The reclamation that followed, with the addition of erecting a residence for himself in a most picturesque situation, has converted a locality characterised only a few years ago by the usual evidences of neglect, into one of the most attractive and charming spots in the country. In fact, Mayhira House, near Kong, with the surrounding grounds and estate, may be fairly claimed as one of the numerous triumphs of the enterprising proprietor. Unquote. He wrote many works on Irish history and archaeology, and was engaged on a biographical work at the time of his death. He founded the Dublin Quarterly Journal of Science. His life is one long record of beneficent activity. He carried out to the end the motto which he had taken for his guide at the outset of his career. He is recognised as one of the greatest surgeons of the last century, and the recognition is universal. And it should be remembered that the reputation of a great surgeon cannot be disturbed by the discoveries of posterity, as is the case with men, who, as doctors, have obtained in one age the fame of great luminaries of science, and who, as knowledge progresses, reveal themselves to a mocking world to have been the veriest Merry Andrews. Wilde's Arbeitsfeld war die Klinik, Wilde's field was the operating room, says of him a great German writer on surgery. Elsewhere in German medical books of the highest authority, the Irish surgeon is referred to in the most eulogistic terms. Now praise from German scientific men, who for the most part seem to hold that light can come from nowhere in the world but a German university town, and who have too often distinguished themselves by a manifestation of envy and a spirit of almost feminine denigrement, is the sincerest praise that a British subject may ever hope to reap. One writer describes Wilde as ein Meister in geniale Schlussfolgerungen, a master in deductions inspired by genius. Another German authority says of him, auch in seinem lebhaften und praktischen Interesse für Taubstumme erinnert uns wilder Anitard. In his strong and practical interest in deaf mutes also, Wilde reminds us of Itard. Schwarzer describes him as the father of modern otology. Indeed, it appears that as an otologist, he was even greater than as an oculist. At a recent conference of medical men in Zurich, when the great pioneers of modern surgery were being discussed in a lecture, 
only three British surgeons were named, and these were Graves, Stokes and Wilde. In Dublin medical circles, he is still spoken of with the highest respect. Most contemporary doctors of his day would now be mentioned with the pitying smile with which modern physicians refer to all their predecessors whose studies were completed before the year 1889, swept away the clouds which had obscured the vision of the men who professed to heal. Mr. J.B. Storey, FRCSI, who was senior surgeon of the St. Mark's Ophthalmic Hospital, and who since its transformation into the Royal Victoria Eye and Ear Hospital is continuing the work of Sir William Wilde at that splendid institution, is more eloquent in the praise of his predecessor's skill and science. He also holds that Sir William was greater as an oral surgeon than as an eye doctor, but in both fields he considers him to have been one of the most distinguished surgeons that Great Britain has yet produced. The same unanimity of praise is accorded to his literary work, Perhaps the most interesting reference to his qualities as a writer on the special subjects which he chose is contained in a passage which occurs in the preface which his wife, Lady Wilde, wrote to the life of Berenger, which her husband had left uncompleted at the time of his death, and which Lady Wilde finished. She begins by saying what diffidence she feels to take up the pen which her husband had let fall. So strongly does she feel her inferiority to him, and goes on to say... Quote, there was probably no man of his generation more versed in our national literature, in all that concerned the land and the people, the arts, architecture, topography, statistics, and even the legends of the country, but above all, in his favourite department, the descriptive illustration of Ireland past and present, in historic and prehistoric times, he has justly gained a wide reputation, as one of the most learned and accurate, and at the same time one of the most popular writers of the age on Irish subjects. In the misty cloudland of Irish antiquities, he may especially be looked upon as a safe and steadfast guide. Unquote. His charitableness and compassion for human suffering was such that, although he was a pleasure-loving man, he was ever ready, at a moment's notice, to leave the gayest and happiest social reunion to attend to the wants of some patient who might be in need of his gratuitous assistance. An anecdote in Fitzpatrick's Life of Lever, communicated to the biographer by John Lever, the novelist's nephew, illustrates this benevolent trait in the great surgeon's character. Quote, On one occasion he, Lever, wanted Wilde to come and meet at dinner some friends he had assembled, and calling at Merrion Square, was told that the doctor could not possibly appear. Being denied several times, my uncle at last put his handkerchief in bandage form over his merry twinkling eyes. His expedient brought the oculist to the door in a moment, the rencontre ending in a hearty laugh at the success of the trick, which continued to afford much amusement at Temple Rogue. Unquote. Sir William Wilde died after a long illness on Wednesday 19th of April 1876 and was buried at Mount Jerome Cemetery. His hearse was followed to the grave by a large and representative procession. The principal mourners were Mr W Wilde, Mr Oscar Wilde and the Reverend Mr Noble. All the Dublin papers published long obituary notices of the man and the whole country deplored his loss. How pleasant it would be if this man's memory could be left undisturbed as that of one who was great and good, if nothing needed to be said which may tarnish in some degree a reputation so nobly won. 
alas the exigencies of this biography exact in justice to its immediate subject a closer investigation into the moral composition of one who together with many sterling qualities may have transmitted to his son certain leanings instincts passions which shall help us to understand the dismaying problem of that son's conduct of his life it may be briefly then stated that together with a high reputation as a man of science and as a kind-hearted genial and charitable man sir william wilde had also the evil repute of being a man of strong unbridled passions in the gratification of which no sense of social or professional responsibility could restrain him a characteristic anecdote of a stinging retort made to him by a veterinary surgeon whom he once met while out riding in phoenix park is still told and public opinion ever held that the veterinary surgeon's critique was just and right one of these patients a miss travers indeed brought an action against the surgeon oculist in ordinary but the woman's sanity appeared doubtful and the case was dismissed his son oscar used to relate of his mother as an instance of her noble serenity towards life how when she was nursing his father on his dying bed each morning there used to come into the sick room the veiled and silent figure of a woman in deep mourning who sat and watched but never spoke and at nightfall went away to return on the following morning it may be noted as a significant fact that the son seemed to see no aspersion on his father's reputation in this story it appeared to him to be an apt illustration of his mother's nobility of character sir william wilde left besides his legitimate children a number of natural offspring one natural son of his was established by him as a surgeon oculist in a practice in lower baggot street about two hundred yards from his wife's home the man died some years ago but is still remembered as the son of sir william wilde another trait in his character which it may be worth while to note because this characteristic was undoubtedly transmitted to one of his sons namely to oscar's brother was his great neglect of himself he was very shabby and careless about his appearance he used to be spoken of as one of the untidiest men in ireland an anecdote is told of father healy which illustrates the reputation that sir william had in this respect at a dinner party at which the father was present and which was held shortly after sir william wilde had been knighted an englishman who had just crossed from holyhead was complaining of the sea passage he had been through it was i think he said the dirtiest night i have ever seen oh said father healy then it must have been wild the portraits of sir william which exist showing him at different ages reveal as few physiognomies can do an extraordinary mixture of intellectuality and animalism of benevolence and humanity with bestial instinct mr harry furness has included him in his gallery of ugly men and women the qualification is hardly a just one as to the upper part of his face sir william was remarkably handsome no one with such a forehead and such eyes could be called ugly but the lower part of his face and especially the almost simian mouth are very bad in his son oscar the same extraordinary contrast between the upper and lower parts of his face was to be observed he had the forehead and eyes of a genius or an angel his mouth was ugly almost abnormal 
and such as to justify the accuracy if not the charitableness of his strong enemy the marquess of queensbury in an inhuman jest about his personal appearance which he made just after the poor man's conviction end of chapter one